0: I'm Clint Emerson, and welcome to season two of Can You Survive This Podcast, where the interview is just as dangerous as the scenarios I put my guests through. From hostage situations to natural disasters, carjackings, active shooters, and more, if you're looking for the skills necessary to survive these situations, then this is the show for you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast. Today, I got another awesome guest. He is the uh, owner, founder of Centurion Arms. He is a retired decorated combat veteran, Navy SEAL, and his name is Monty LeClaire. Monty, thanks for coming on the show, buddy.
1: Hey, thanks. Appreciate it. Good to see you again, Clint. Thanks for having me. Too. Me too.
0: Yeah. Um, so, you know, this, this, this show is all about survival. And uh, I like to kind of find out, especially from my peers, like the 20 years you were in, what was like your favorite piece of kit that you were issued? Or maybe it's that one piece of gear that is still sitting in your house or in your garage, but you just can't seem to get rid of it because it just would feel almost illegal to do so. Do you have a a piece of kit like that?
1: Man, I'd say my most favorite piece of kit, which I was not able to take with me, would be that Mark 12 rifle. the Mark 12 rifle and the team's, the sniper rifle. Yeah. So, unfortunately, I wasn't able to take it with me, but I was able to recreate <laughs> it. So I found a legal way to have what I wanted, but I just, cause basically, I, you know, 556 five, for a precision rifle at the time frame wasn't really on my mind when that came thing came out. It was just so fucking ridiculously accurate and deadly that uh, so many people were slain with that, especially in the Iraq environment and shooting guys. With that thing is just fucking an amazing rifle. And so that ended up being my favorite piece of kit as far as, as just overall gear ever issued it was Mark 12.
0: Yeah. Yeah. For me the other day, so I'm in the middle of moving, right? So I came across a pair of Danners. Danners used to be like the coolest boot that you could get issued. Remember that?
1: Oh, hell yeah. Uh, I'm buying my own pair because yeah, I bought my own pair because they were that fucking cool.
0: yeah no that's right no one else there was a time when they did not issue it you had to go buy your own but uh eventually i got a pair that were the, the danner lightweights and uh those things were sitting in the garage the other day as i'm moving and i looked at them and they still have like iraqi or afghanistan dirt all over them and i was like nope can't get rid of them i'll probably never wear them again but i just can't get rid of those damn things and then then as i dug even further I came across the GSG-9 blacked-out Adidas boot. Do you remember those?
1: Oh, hell yeah. Those, that's all the cool guys. I never had a pair. All the cool older guys. had.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, so bad. yeah, they look cool, but they were kind of worthless as far as like, you know, I would use them for, you know, CQB and all that kind of CT training stuff. Um, but I ended up not really wearing them as much as I thought. I thought they were great for jumping out of airplanes and that's about it. And you know, the deal, you don't really use your feet when you're jumping out of an airplane. <laughs> so
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, but they looked cool.
1: They did. I, I remember those being the cool thing for a little while when I was really, really <laughs> yeah. early on and just coming in and stuff like that. Those were the shit I'd say footwear. My favorite pair ended up being when we were doing deployments. At Iraq night, Nike came out with those boots that were like featherweight. Do you remember those things?
0: Uh, yeah. I think I got a pair pair of the like RDT and E versions of those.
1: Okay, yeah, they would issued some of those for us. Those things were like fucking wearing sneakers. You know what I mean? Those were like like yeah. super lightweight tennis shoes. They're like paper thin, but uh shockingly as light as they were, they held up great. I mean, they held up through the entire deployment. I didn't think they'd make it, but those things were phenomenal boots.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Uh, and, and then, if, and then, you've, of course, you have your old faithfuls, which Solomon. I mean, I don't think people realize that you know, there's very little like traditional combat boots being worn by special operations. It's mostly adventure racing shoes like Solomon. And, uh, I know I've been issued dozens of pairs and I still have all of them because I can't seem to get rid of those either. So I just kind of pretty much hoard all my shoes.
1: That's I, right now. It's funny you say that because I still have Solomon's that I was issued. that are downstairs that I put on when I go downstairs to work out in the morning. I cruise down to the gym in my basement and my socks throw on my Solomons that I got issued with a little pull and a yeah. little zip thing that doesn't actually have ties. A little thing that you pull and tighten up. Yeah. Shoe. And that's why I still wear in my gym. So I still have a shit ton of the shoes. Some of them actually gotten old enough that they dry rot, which I guess just means I'm that old, but, Yeah,
0: there you go. I'm with you, man. It's not, we're not getting younger. And yeah, and I even just one last plug for Solomon. I mean, I put them in, um, my hundred deli skill books is like the shoe to get because those speed laces you're referring to are made out of Kevlar. And so in an, in an emergency or in a or if you find yourself restrained, you can use those shoelaces to cut through metal if necessary, you know, like handcuffs or chain link or, you know, whatever. So, uh, Solomon's come with, uh, Kevlar speed laces that, uh, have more, more than just one use. So, um, oh yeah. Okay. The other thing I like to collect from guys is, uh, what's your, what's your everyday carry? You know, that's real, that's been popular for years now, but everyone's always curious. So what is Monty? What do you carry every day with you? That's kind of well, like your go-to.
1: Right here on me. I've got the, uh, the bill rape here, Amtac blade. Oh yeah. So carry that one. So I can get to that one with my, my left hand. And then the other one that I got on me here is, uh, Oh, man, I'm forgetting the name of this. I actually traded one of my local PD guys who who's really into uh, the Bill Ray-tier, uh, Rapier. I'll, I'll get the name of this in a second, though. It's another one, another one of the Cyat Kali uh, blade guys.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, and then uh, headhunter blades. I've got some headhunter blades, some of the rat stuff that I'll like. You know, sometimes I carry those in lieu of some of these. Uh, the Amtac is always on me. That's
0: 100% yeah. on me
1: all the time. The other one I'll flop out between, like, a headhunter blade uh, this blade, I'll keep uh, another dirty, but from headhunter blades in my truck sometimes. And then uh, I carry a Glock 48, and I use the Blackpoint Tactical, which is the one that uh, Bill Rapiers, you know, from American Tactical Shooting is big on, and do the just forward to three o'clock carry on that. So I got a Glock 48 that stays on me in my truck. Another gun I keep in my house is actually the Shadow Systems.
0: Did you finally get one?
1: Yeah, I got one from him. I got the MR-920. So 920, yeah. I got I got, glad. yeah, no, it's a great gun. It's been, I have had no malfunction. I probably got about five grand in ammo through it now, about 5,000 5, rounds or so. I killed a, I killed a red dot on it already. So it's, you know, switching out to a new red dot on it. So, <laughs> but yeah, pistol has been great. So.
0: Oh, awesome, man. I'm glad you got, yeah, that's, that's exactly mine is uh same. You know, I got the uh, shadow, shadow systems, little, you know, little Cerakote going on, making it look pretty with an RMR on top, red dot. And then, uh, same thing, got the, the same holster system that, uh, that Bill recommends, except I, you know, that little leather extension that was like right on here with these, uh, zero clips, I just got rid of the leather extension and just put it all together as one, you know,
1: that's I just, exactly what I did.
0: Yeah. I didn't like that leather thing, you know, it just, I don't know why it just kind of, I don't feel like it was necessary.
1: Yeah. i wore it for a couple months. Took it off. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then I, and then the, uh, the, the second piece is the, uh, of course I carry bills and I carry mine, like the new outlaw that, uh, the outlaw violent nomad outlaw. Yep. Um,
1: I've got that. I'm going to, I'm going to weave that into, into a location on my stuff that I, I'll keep that. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I sent one. you one, right? Thank yeah. You. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually oh, wear that t-shirt you sent me the violent nomads t shirt So yeah. Did I'm you see on this one? one, one I'm my is- old schools today.
0: This is one of my retro for us 80s kids, right?
1: Yeah, oh, yeah. I remember yeah. that. Blockbuster.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Facebuster. Okay. You're listening to Can You Survive This Podcast? Thanks for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and share on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Cool. We got the kid out of the way. We got our favorites. Okay. That's always good. People love that shit. They'll be uh, asking, "What'd you
1: say? What'd you say that brand was? What what is it that he carries again?" <laughs> I do remember actually. There was a time on the internet, someone posted a picture of us on the internet, and I happened to be in that picture. And everybody, it was funny because it's funny that we defaulted on the favorite gear to footwear because that was the number one thing. I'm sitting there with a, like a Mark 12 rifle. And I had another one with like an old school rifle that we confiscated from somebody on my lap. And everybody commented on the shoes. It was yeah. like, "What shoes are those? What shoes are they wearing?" You know, all the others. <laughs> Kit yeah, was just basic kit, you know, basic camis and stuff like that. But it was everybody commented on the footwear, so that was pretty funny. You know, yeah, actually about get another piece of kit. Obviously, you don't use it in daily life, like a pair of shoes or weave it in. But it was the damn London Bridge uh, Rhodesians? You know, where oh, yeah. everything? Oh yeah. Threw over your body armor. That ended up being your way. I was against Rhodesians for a long time because I was at four, so you always did all your land warfare and you're laying on your stomach the whole time. You know, yeah. then the reality is, is you end up going someplace. Then you're in Iraq and you're standing on your feet all the time. So the rig made <laughs> yeah. sense, you know, at that point. And so the reality of it was, the Rhodesian ended up being a great piece of kit. I mean, it did stuff. I mean, I still got. it. I mean, I beat the piss out of that thing. You know, I mean, A couple of deployments, training, and all that kind of stuff, and still going strong.
0: Yeah, I I was with you. I uh, I wore that Rhodesian since day one, pretty much, and uh, I was wearing it when nobody else really liked them. Um, but the way I liked it is I personally just don't like shit on my waist or on my legs, you know, in the Rhodesian gets everything up away. So you have full flexibility at the, at the hips and at the knees, right? You don't have any kind of restrictions going on. And so, and you can still throw a pack on and it's not kind of disrupting anything. But then once body armor became like, obviously the number one, piece of kit you wanted to have on. Remember at the beginning, it was like, I don't want to wear this shit. <laughs> and then, oh, yeah. you know, and exactly. we used to use Vietnam example, guys running through the jungle. They didn't have fucking body armor on. They were light. They were nimble. And then, yeah, uh, yeah. Then when you get ambushed or get blown up, you're like, okay, I'll put the body armor on now. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. yeah. Exactly. But yeah, wow. that body armor, once you could hook everything to that, then now, you know, now you got the modern day warrior that everyone, you know, that does paint gunning wants to look like you know so you got all your stuff you got your body armor you got everything on you know right there on the plate on the front side you can have stuff that hooks into the back and yeah you know, you're all ninja like it's pretty cool yeah, um keep
1: everything up. yeah like you said everything's up and high in your body nothing really as little as possible hanging below your waist is, is you know what i mean keeping the, like you said nimble and moving even with your body armor and shit but yeah what always cracks me up is in the gun industry when you see these guys go they think just drop leg holsters are cool. So they're wearing the drop leg holster and they don't even wear body armor. You know, they're not even wearing body armor (laughs) and they got this thing down on their leg. Like, it's actually kind of funny. I was up in LA like years and years ago and I did teach like a carbine class through a friend up there. The guy had just that and I'm just like, hey, you might wanna cinch that up a little bit. We're gonna do some drills where you're running around. Sure enough, the dude's running around, his pistol literally flopped out of his holster and was on the ground while the dude's running around doing drills with his M4. Yeah. So it was just like people don't realize like, hey, you, you want shit up on your body as high as possible. The only reason people use drop leg holsters is because they had to get it to get, you know, to it with their body armor. You know what I mean? Right. Drop right. It a little bit off their waist because it would be, you know, impeded getting to it from your body armor. you just you only need to drop it just low enough and guys can keep it as high as possible. You know what I mean? With that leg strap super tight if you have to do it. But if you can avoid doing it.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: don't use drop legs I'm, at all.
0: Right. I'm with you, man. I think, uh, and the other piece of the equation that kind of forced that was mobility, right? I mean, it was you, as soon as you add vehicles to the mix and you're getting in and out, you don't want a bunch of shit hung up on those doors that's, you know, attached to your leg. You know, you, it, it almost becomes like a, you know, a life threatening item because you and I both know you get hung up like, uh, like you're if you've got a drop down and it gets hung up on a latch and you're in the middle of something, I mean, that can that's that's life or death. A bullet's going to hit you because you're stuck in that door or that door frame, you know? It's a uh, oh, yeah, yeah, Definitely. um, yeah, so good stuff. All right, let's talk guns now. We're kind of going down that path All anyway, right. but I know that, uh, heck, I've known you for. 20, 30 years probably. As we get older, the time gets longer. And uh, I remember you were the go-to guy there for, at the very beginning of our careers when it came to guns. And um, and then you started building. When did, when did you actually start building rifles?
1: You know, honestly, first rifle I ever built was probably when I was 18. I'd gotten a lower because basically what I wanted, I couldn't get a hold of. So basically, I had to piece it all together. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was just real yeah. specific for some reason. I kind of grew up around him. So my dad always had guns. He was a big history buff. So he has like a room with nothing but books about history, real historical guy. And, you know, just like a lot of the firearms related stuff in regards to history. You know what I mean? So he's got a lot of World War One, a lot of World War II stuff, a lot of bolt and Mausers. But that as a kid obviously fueled me in the interest in war and guns and all that kind of stuff. I always knew I'd do the military and then, you know, he got me a book on my 16th birthday, and I think he was like, oh, man, what did I do? And it was uh, that element of surprise in Vietnam. So oh, I just yeah. started reading that book like, man, I'm like, boom, that's what I'm going to do. Period. End of story. I was At 16, I already knew. I'm like, that's what I'm doing right there. But uh, I think having that background with all the firearms around his interest in him and kind of learning about him always made me into guns. So then I got real specific. So if really, the first one I built was at 18 years old in an AR. I just kind of figured it out, watching him you know, before Internet even, you know what I mean? Uh there's a guy who put out like build videos and shit like that. So I'd buy those and figure it out and kind of like learn about the gun. So my first one is at that. And then uh, but basically, yeah, that kind of moved on later on. I built a few more and I started building them for like team guys here and there that would bring the parts and stuff like that. We'd assemble them and do them. And then that obviously, you know, long term ended up snowballing and design and developing some of my own rail systems and then ended up developing, you know, getting patents and all that other kind of stuff. And here we are today over time, but yeah.
0: Yeah. So now today, uh, Centurion arms, right. You, uh, yeah. you founded it and, uh, you've, you've had that for, for how long now?
1: Shit. We started that in 2006. We are just going through that the other day. So I had that while I was active duty. So we actually first thing we came up with was a set of sites. So I was always an HK geek. You know, a lot of the gun guys are, you know, geek out on the HK, you know, the German stuff kind of like yeah. high end, And uh, the HK 416 came out. Right. And they made those diapeter sights that everybody loved from the MP5 and put it on that gun. But you couldn't really, uh, not well anyway, take those guns and put them on a regular M4 and use them because the receiver height on a 416 is taller. You know what I mean? So then the sights would be too low on a normal M4. So what we did is we made new bases and started making our own 416 style sights for regular M4s. And that's kind of how it started. And then I started building uppers. I, once again, I fell in love with the Mark 12 when that came out. So I found all the correct guys that were making all the parts, you know, went to visit, you know, different guys over time that were actually making them for the military, kind of learned all about the gun and started replicating that. So started building uppers. And so it just kind of progressed from there.
0: I gotcha. And so for people that don't know, um, let's we'll go back to simple. So when we talk about rifles, we're talking about what the m like uh what are they in the outside it's AR fifteens right, so that's the Maybe, common yeah. yeah, and that that is what has been labeled assault rifles by all the politicians and uh in and, and with that you know the the that ar fifteen that AR platform carbine platform that's been commonly used in some of these mass shootings have you caught any shit for that being a manufacturer or is it uh has actually business been good for you?
1: I mean, I get, not directly, I guess we haven't been involved with any lawsuits with anything like that as far as shooting. So as in shit terms like that, no, we haven't. But business has definitely been picked up because anytime they talk about banning them, I mean, people, people, yeah. flock to them, you know, so people flock to buying them. So it's actually kind of been crazy. COVID brought on a big, I mean, we've been pumping hard for over a year now. In fact, we're getting ready to, uh, you went to our one shop right now and we're actually buying a whole nother building. So there's another town over that we've been talking to about a half hour away from here. We're actually building a whole new, like uh, 17,000 square foot shop. I've already got a whole bunch of new machines on order to get a whole bunch more stuff in because even though things have slowed back down, we're still not keeping up with our production. So, and we're ramping it up and taking on new projects. So it's just continuing to grow.
0: Yeah. Wow. Now I'm kind of curious cause we keep hearing about all the shortages, right? Lumber price has gone up because of shortage and demand. And then you've got steel. So how is, I'm assuming that there's a shortage in the steel industry that's been affecting manufacturing and slowing it down a little bit, or, or has that affected you?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Surprisingly, like, so we got uh, extrusion that we get for our handguards and stuff from normal manufacturers. Normally six to eight weeks, we order it six to eight weeks. We got it. Now it's six months. So it's a six month lead to get it. So now we're having to order like huge amounts of it. So we're ordering huge amounts of it and trying to order it more. Basically, kind of get like a uh, what you call a blanket PO for it. So it's just constantly coming in, and then ordering big amounts because there's times when you can't even get stuff. So one of the things is we set up to make uh, we're getting set up to make our own bolt groups in house for stuff. You know, the bolts and the carriers and all the other steel parts. Some of the steel I can get, some of them we can't even get right now. Can't, it's not even doesn't matter. I mean, there's places that double the price and you still can't even get it at that.
0: Wow. Yeah, I know. I I was buying some ammo the other day and it's one, it's hard to come by. Uh, and two, it costs a fucking fortune right now. (laughs) Like I was buying some, especially like, you know, more of your like 45, 70, right? That, I mean, I I probably, I don't know how much I paid per bullet, but it was a lot (laughs) just to get, you know, just to get a couple of hundred rounds, you know, but, uh, um, okay. So as far as that steel dilemma, I mean, have they forecasted when things might get back to normal or what are you thinking?
1: Man, it's it's hard saying on the, uh, you know, a lot of it from talking to people, it has a lot to do with, too, like the mill for my aluminum that that uh, gets us the aluminum. They're saying the biggest thing is, is they can't get employees to work right now because the unemployment benefits are up. So they're like, we're, we're short 40 people. In the shop. So they can't even put it out. That's the catch. So you're like, we got material here, but we can't put out the end product for you. So you have that aspect. And I guess mills might be the same thing. So I don't know if it's quite a raw material issue on the mills end or if it's a personnel issue. But either way, on the end user end of trying to get it, they're not totally sure. I think some of it will, it sounds like the mills that I talked to said that they feel like they were getting ready to end the uh, extra benefits for unemployment. And that would bring a lot of people back and then things would free up. So I think that's when the market will start getting back a little bit more normal. And each state's a little bit different.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Amazing.
1: Isn't it crazy?
0: It is some fucking lazy motherfuckers out there these days. It's like, go back to work. Fuck. Yeah. Um, I mean, i got to do something. (laughs) i lose my mind. I'm
1: not doing anything, you know? So Jesus. people are like, are you going to retire sometime? I'm like, well, you know, you got to do something in retirement. I retired once, maybe I'll do this and retire again, but I don't know about you. Wouldn't you lose your shit if you just sat home all the time?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have to be doing something productive, building something, putting something together. Yeah. Feeling like I'm contributing in some form or fashion to either my own lifestyle or others. It's like, why, well, you know, I I just can't imagine not doing anything it's just crazy to me or, you know, just relying on some outside source of temporary income all the way up to the last minute before I would even think about going and getting a job. That to me is just a, it's a mindset issue. I don't even, I don't even get it. Um, all right. So let's dial back into the sealed days. So uh, we went through 18 Delta together for those listening. That's the, uh, the medical kind of trauma training. Um, we were in the last class that was uh, done in San Antonio at Fort Sam Houston, and that was the short course, which means we just do the first six months, and then you you wait later in your career, you can do the long course, which I did at Fort Bragg. Um, yeah, we hung out there for a while, and then, okay, where'd you go after that?
1: Damn. So you did actually make it back to the long course then, huh?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, I went okay. out there, and uh, it was one still one of the best courses, the military, I think, I mean, especially, I mean, a lot of cool army schools that are out there, but that one's definitely the best one as far as, I mean, you come out of there a freaking trauma surgeon, you know, you can do just about anything and you got the knowledge to back it up. You can do labs, you can push drugs. I mean, you come out of there pretty much a, a medical stud. We will be right back after the break. But, um, so you, but you went on to where uh, seal team four.
1: Yeah, basically out of the 18 Delta short course, I went out to seal team four and I spent, well, Oh, what, six and a half, almost seven years out at team four. Cause I wanted to go to team four. Cause at the time that was like the hot team. You know, I remember that back in the day, It's like, if anything's yeah. going to pop off in the world, it's going to be in South America. It's so unstable. uh, oh, you know, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. ha, 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 what a joke you ended up at the right team. Cause you actually ended up going to three. Yeah. So, which was, uh, yeah, Middle East at the time, but yeah, for me it was four. We thought that was a place to go. I mean, it was a good team. It was a good time. A lot of really good training. A lot of good, uh, good there. But yeah, I went back there until I ended up going back to the 18 Delta Long Course. I got sucked into that. So.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you did what? What year did you go through Long Course?
1: Oh man. So maybe 2000. Maybe span across 2002, 2003 time frame.
0: Damn, we were just neck and neck because uh, yeah, I went. I went around the same time, and it, ironically enough, I had, what, two, three guys that were in our short course ended up in that long course together, and we were the only SEALs, right? So, there's two or three of us. You remember Ola, right? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so that dude, so damn funny, you know. You know he, he, You know, team guys and dicks, right? He loved his dick, and so here we are, Army school. Everybody's sitting in class. Ola gets, Ola's sitting next to me and he pulls out his dick as usual. And he, he has a Sharpie and he wraps his dick around his wrist. He's got this flesh band around his, I'm kind of looking at him like, what are you doing? What, 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 on what are you? (laughs) He's like, Hey man, you, and Ola, this guy's from Columbia, right? So he's like, Hey man, you grab that Sharpie right there. And I want you to draw a circle on my shaft In a minute hand and an hour hand. And I'm like, all right, that sounds fun. So I, I, you know, I'm drawing this this basically watch face on his dick that's wrapped around his wrist. Okay, then he gets up and he walks around to each army guy and goes, hey, man. Can you tell me what time it is? And they all look down at his wrist, right They all fall for it and, and it takes a minute for each of these guys to realize like what what is that wrapped around his wrist) <laughs> But he would do this some dick trick every fucking day, and it uh, it definitely made it definitely made medical medical training a little more oh, entertaining.
1: Yeah, you look <laughs> I'd rather been in your class because we had a few team guys and stuff, but they weren't the character he was. Yeah, I know him pretty well. I <laughs> yeah. went down a couple months ago and saw him. Now that he's out and retired, and we kind of hung out for a day or two. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's hilarious. I love that guy. I think his nickname for it was the Cacasaurus.
0: Right, the Cacasaurus, yeah, he had so I'm many I remember,
1: yeah,
0: I think we were all at the same party, and he hooks up with this uh he hooks up with somebody and he goes in the back room and uh whatever he they they bang, and then he comes out into the party, butt naked, right, and there's like a red red cup, red igloo cup full of beer sitting on the coffee table. He straddles the coffee table and dunks his dick into the cup and then looks at the crowd and goes, Gakasaurus was hungry. And then he turns around and goes back into the bedroom.
1: <laughs> it's like,
0: what the fuck? This guy is nuts. But uh, yeah, what a great dude. Um, yeah, he
1: is.
0: <laughs> so, all Aww. right, you go through 18 Delta. You team for 18 Delta long course. And then uh, what, what? 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 where'd you go after that?
1: Man, after the long course. Well, it's funny because they sucked all this. Uh, I, all the guys that were in my long course class were actually East Coast guys. And the funny part was, is, and you remember how all it is between the East and West Coast. So we're all East Coast guys. And they're like, okay, yeah, you're gonna all going to go back. So I, was, I went from four and it was when they were standing up Team 10. So I was going to be a plank owner at 10 and go over to 10. But then they forced detailed me out to the 18 Delta course. And then they were like, you know, but as you know, it's a PCS move. So all of us going there like five guys are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're going to go right back to your East coast and you're going to, you, you know, cause we all have houses and you know, we're all settled in there. Sure enough. Yeah. As soon as we get there about two months into it, like, yeah, all you motherfuckers are going West coast. <laughs> <laughs> like we're sending everybody West coast. Everybody's like, Oh shit. You know? Uh, so some of the guys actually worked deals to try to get out of it and stuff. I didn't. So I actually, I ended up, uh, I was like, fuck it. I'll just go back out West. So I ended up going to team five afterwards. That's right. That's and right. it was funny because, you know, you're like, oh, fuck, man. Okay, now I got to sell my house. I got to do all this shit, move out to the West Coast. But it was funny because I remember driving all the way out there, trying to get, you know, set up to bring, you know, family out and shit. So you drive all the way out there. And I just remember that whole drive all across the United States and then getting out there, pulling onto base, stepping out onto the beach behind Team 5 and you're like, take a big breath out of air. I'm like, fuck yeah, this is going to be good. And so you know, <laughs> yeah. from being like, you know, it's one of those things. It's like I relate to things sometimes. It's like I tell people, and that was one of them. It was like when I got moved out there, you're like, oh, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to me in my whole life. And then just as soon as I got back out there and on the beach and take that big breath of air, and you're like, this is going to be like the best thing that ever happened to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So it was one of those things that you thought it was a bad deal. It ended up being a good deal. And I, you know what? I had a great time at Team 4. In fact, one of the funny things is, or I had a great team, uh, time at Team 5. Um, and I actually ended up enjoying the West Coast a lot more than I actually did enjoy the East Coast, too. So it ended up being a really good thing. And the funny thing is, is my first platoon that I did at 5. Do you know Tommy Crimmins? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was in his platoon. So I was in the famous Foxtrot platoon at Team 5, <laughs> referred to as Tommy's Criminals. Yeah. So the one that got the, this band like two weeks before deployment, yeah yeah. uh, what was that what was that for again (laughs) oh man what wasn't it for uh that was an awesome i mean honestly it was an awesome platoon because through the entire workup cycle um they had just gotten back from i want to say they had just gotten back from doing one deployment and they geared up and i want to say you had like uh there was me there was you know tage at all yep yep okay yeah yeah no of them Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Project Warpath. I think that's what he's out now. And then you got Kevin Kent, who I'm sure you knew. Oh yeah. He, he ended up being uh he's in Hollywood trying to do some actor stuff. I think right now a real good guy. Anyway, all good guys, all like from our year and, and and Kevin was actually in my buds class. So anyway, we ended up going and uh, doing that whole platoon, but it was like literally every trip we went on, there was some sort of an incident. You know what I mean? Someone was arrested. Somebody was in jail. Uh, you know, we had one guy who was so drunk that he ended up going and he couldn't get his card to work in his hotel room door, right? So he ends up kicking in the door and goes in the door, and there's other people in there. He's like, well, "What the fuck?" And he goes back out and realizes I'm in the right spot in the room, but I'm on the wrong floor. So he ends up <laughs> going to the you know, he ends up going to his room and getting in. So it was just like yeah. the whole platoon was was just after one after another. There was actually there's a whole incident out in El Centro. I don't know if you'd heard about it, where the guys had gotten into a fight with some. So you got to tell the whole story because it's not really an anti-law enforcement story. But what ended up being funny was the guys go out. And for whatever reason, I, I know the story, but luckily I wasn't there. I actually ended up just staying back that night. So all the guys go out to the bar. And uh, there's, there's a couple guys in the bar. And anyway, a couple of the team guys end up in a fight with these two guys, right? Well, these guys never identify themselves as anything other than just some dudes in the bar. So they go out in there. And the two guys are fighting it out, and the team guys are like holding his buddy back, going, okay, just stay out of it. Let these two guys handle their thing so we can get done and go back in and drink because they just showed up at the bar. Well, at any rate, somewhere along the line, one of the guys pulls out a gun, right? So the team guys jump on him, disarm him, beat the shit out of him. Well, it turns out that these guys are undercover cops, never identified themselves as cops, aren't supposed to be in the bar and drinking. They're supposed to be at a stakeout in a totally different location. You know, so they're not at their stakeout, they're on duty, they're not on duty, they're in a bar in a complete separate situation, get into a fight with team guys, get their asses handed to them, end up in a bar for like three or four days. Once they pulled the gun, then it was no old bar. Then everybody just jumped in and started. But they didn't realize they were cops until afterwards. You know what I mean? It was like, yeah, so they're yeah. beating on these guys, then all of a sudden like, holy shit, someone pulls out their wall and they're like, holy shit, these guys are cops. <laughs> and so... You know, that ended up going up and, you know, the people were writing their congressmen like the law enforcement guys were writing their congressmen to get all the guys. Well, it turns out nothing happened. Nothing. Guys all ended up getting lawyers and stuff, but nothing happened to any of us because the cops were so far out of their lane. And the actually the only thing that saved us that legitimized our story was one of the reservists that they called back was a California DOJ officer. So he uh, was a California DOJ officer working for Trade Act who completely validated everything we had said. He's like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. So he was a California law enforcement guy, you know, one of the head guys yeah. up there. And was like, everything they said happened. These guys never identified themselves. You know what I mean? And right. so at any rate, I think that's the only thing that saved the team guys. And I, the way I understand <laughs> it, I heard the two law enforcement guys ended up losing their jobs.
0: I but bet. Uh, it sounds like they were, uh, yeah, they were dicking around when they should have been working.
1: <laughs> yeah, they did not. Yeah. If they, if they were going to do that, I mean, they shouldn't be going and getting in bar fights. You know what I mean? When they're, when they're already hanging it out there that far on the edge. So, you know, we had that incident. I want to say once, once again, it was just incident after incident. There's so many of them, but uh, I think the straw that broke the camel's back was, is we got tasked with doing PSD stuff. So right two weeks before deployment we weren't able to take leave because i want to say we went to one of those psd schools down in texas i can't even think of the damn name of it if you say it i'll probably remember it
0: itt uh, that's it yeah. itt yeah. Yep. and for those for those listening psd is like body, bodyguard school and bodyguard training it, it sucks yeah go go ahead
1: So, yeah. So we got tasked with doing PSD stuff. So we're down there. And once again, it's, it's a a rowdy platoon. It's amazing. We didn't get, I mean, I remember doing stuff where I was, I mean, on the way home, obviously you're doing all the vehicle stuff. So everybody's learning all these vehicle maneuvers and stuff like that. (laughs) Of course, the hour ride home going into town, you know what I mean? I want to say, like, I was doing, like, 105 once, you know, driving on the shoulder on the edge of the grass, coming back onto the highway. You're missing embankments by, you know, two feet because you are You guys are trying to cut each other off and do all sorts of silly stuff. But what was funny is, is we are down there in that school, and the guy running the school at the time, he was ex. not, he wasn't, like, an Air Force guy, but I want to say he was, like, the law enforcement first, like, similar, like, the NCIS. Oh, so yeah. he was working there, and uh, his wife was working there. And I think what ended up happening, because we'd done all sorts of silly shit, but the funny part was a lot of it was egged on by the instructors. You know what I mean? Like, we flipped cars over, put them on their sides, you know, some of it driving, some of it by, you know, just flipping them, picking them up and flipping them over and all this stuff. Well, unbeknownst us, I guess, earlier on, what ended up happening in the course, because it's only a two-week course. So I want to say in the first week, there was at some point when his wife was working there as an instructor, too. So she was doing some of the driving stuff with the guys and and working through it and uh, I she someone must have said something that she didn't like and she's like I'll just make this the toughest course you've ever been through did it and as you know when you I mean with the guys you know what I mean taking on a challenge and stuff so I think they they rode her a little bit until she actually walked off the job in the middle of the day she got <laughs> out of the car threw her clipboard down and it's like fuck all you guys are a bunch of assholes and I'm out of here and <laughs> yeah
0: I can imagine.
1: So (laughs) not a real surprise if you know the guys, you know, it's like just put up with some of the bullshit, be like, okay, you know, but at any rate, so I guess they took a whole bunch of notes on us the whole time. So like the day before graduation, the guy running the class decided that he was going to throw us out of the course after it spent like 250 K to put it through this course. Right. Right. So they ended up throwing us out. And so we ended up having to go back to the team completely done. And oh yeah, actually we're on our second OIC because our first OIC got a DUI. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And the second OIC, I forget what all happened with him. He had all sorts of stuff. Um, <laughs> him, I forget that didn't get fired. So, you know, here's the funniest part, though, in that, in that platoon. Operationally, as much crazy shit went on in that platoon, operationally, the funniest part about it was you'd go through each of the blocks of training, CQC, and... Tommy Crimmins wasn't one to back down from the staff necessarily. You know what I mean? He would just say, this is the way we're fucking doing it. And that's the way it is. You know what I mean? And it was funny because he would be like, uh, fuck. Okay. You know what I mean? He just had that personality that would like go through that and like not get in trouble for it. You know, he just, that Teflon personality. And so what was funny though, is we'd go through stuff and operational. Like I said, it was actually the most solid platoon, you know, I'd ever been in, you know what I mean? As far as, and, and ever was. Uh, you'd have the instructors, the individual instructors be like, come up, hey, man, you guys getting open in your platoon. Let me know, man. I want in. Because <laughs> they love it. Yeah, it was I bet. Like, You know what I mean? It was a the platoon was a complete fucking wild, wild west. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was yeah. like, anything goes guys did, you know, we we're up at bull Hill, you know, guys are getting fistfights, tear apart the kitchen all night long in the middle of the night, you know, fucking <laughs> passing out on the porches and shit, you know, next morning, get up for training. Everybody'd be like, yeah, you'd be hung over. But after breakfast, everybody's ready to go for training, you know, get back out and just fucking kick ass on training. So the whole thing, I mean, it was, it was a crazy fucking platoon, but we ended up getting disbanded after all that shit. Uh, yeah. Because the CEO would be like, "I've just had enough of you fucking guys. Like, <laughs> you guys are." And he was right. I mean, we were an international incident waiting to happen. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was yeah. just like you want fucking instant chaos and pandemonium. Just set that group of guys together and just throw a little bit of alcohol on them. You know what I mean? Just shit fucking just blew apart at seams. Um, but operationally, I mean, it was fucking awesome too. I mean, they kicked ass, and everybody did through all the things. You know what I mean? Through all the all the training things. But like, actually, in the end, you guys are painting the ass to deal with. But, you know, you guys actually kicked ass in most of the scenarios.
0: You're listening to Can You Survive This Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and share on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Yeah, well, that that definitely, I think that describes most of your, uh, platoons back in the day you know that was how it was you you played hard party hard and uh you know you didn't know any difference and it all really was based on the old guys who mentored you right so if you had uh an older guy that was you know straight laced and clean cut and military bearing was the most important thing well then that's what you became later on in your career but for me and for you, it was a bunch of like rowdy, just you know, let's go out and fight, and let's just get in trouble, and let's have fun, and let's make the most of every fucking situation we're in. And uh, I I wouldn't change it. I would have never changed it. But I think the culture is you know obviously taking a turn, and I think what seals were we're known for and kind of still are is that rogue maverick kind of mentality. You know, we just like yeah, hey, we don't give a fuck what what you think or how you feel we're just going to continue going forward with what we think and what we feel is appropriate even though it might not be appropriate you know and uh but that was i think the coolest part and the most surprising part of going into the teams for me was like you you kind of expected that what i always say is that knight in shining armor kind of world but it ended up being completely pirate you know like oh wow so we we yeah i You know, being all clean cut or, you know, certainly when it came to operations and when it came to work, you worked hard and you did everything to the best of your ability. But outside of that, all that like typical military stuff wasn't as important there or at that time as it is now and in other units. Right. I mean, and I think that's what made it such a great place to work is that you could uh, you could still be you. And uh, we weren't robots. And I think it also um, showed and just if you took a bunch of team guys back in the day and said, all right, we're going to go out tonight and you stood them up, not one guy would be uniform, right? You'd have mixed and match camis, you know, especially desert operations. You wore dark pants and a light top or a dark or light pants and a dark top um, to blend in with the horizon line. Um, Some guys had Rhodesian chest harness. Some guys had old school H gear. Some guys had, you know, whatever it, there was no, like you have to wear, you know, wear this first line, second line, third line gear. It was just, Hey, wear what works for you and let's go out and get the job done. And I don't, I don't think it's like that is, or as not as much as it used to be, not as flexible as it used to be
1: yeah I definitely agree with that and I think that's part of what happened with that platoon is there was already somewhat of a culture shift going on in the teams like you said to more of the high and tight haircut and you know uniform mentality and that platoon just happened to be I want to say that over half the platoon had already had like four deployments you know I mean by the time we got in that deployment so the catch (laughs) is like you said we were the guys that were raised by the dirty dozen to be the dirty dozen and somehow you know Basically, they kind of disseminate and split apart, and then the cultural changes, and they slip through the cracks. Well, somehow all those cracks got consolidated, you know what I mean, into one platoon, and we got put <laughs> back into it. Was That's like a good way all to of a sudden, it. like probably took an old school platoon, you know what I mean, of guys, and just stuck them all together. Now all of a sudden, you know what I mean. So there was no buffering anymore. It was just an old school platoon with that old school mentality of being the dirty dozen.
0: Yeah, damn, it was that was a lot of fun, man. Lost so many. I've always said if somebody, I mean, when it comes to writing books, I don't think people realize those stories of just debauchery and just mayhem that goes on on a nightly basis. Like every night is a fucking crazy ass novel, right? I mean, and then you add, you add all that up and Holy shit. I think people would just, their jaws would be on the ground with the amount of shit that's, that goes on or at least used to go on. I got, I hope it still goes on. I really do. I hope it still goes on because it's necessary, but, um, yeah,
1: I agree. It'd be sad if that completely died off. Yeah. But I will say what was kind of cool, though, is at least I realized that that platoon left lasting impression. And the reason yeah. I say that was because that was when I was at Team 5. So after I was at 5, I want to say I rotated through Trade Ed, ended up rotating through, you know, Warcom, doing some weapons development stuff. And then uh, rotated to 7 and then all the way finished off at Sniper School. The reason why I think it was funny that I'm like, obviously left a, left a, a mark on the teams, that particular platoon. Cause I remember, I want to say, I spent the last three and a half years. So probably about two years into it when I was pretty close to the end, I remember hearing these new guys, you know what I mean? Or new guys to me anyway, cause I'm getting ready to retire here, you know, within a year or so. And so these young kids are coming through and I hear them talking to these, you know, these stories and they're telling these stories on the line and stuff like that, man, da, 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 and I'm like, dude, this sounds familiar. Right. And I'm like, Hey, what are you guys talking about though? Like, yeah, there was this old platoon at team five, this Foxtrot platoon I was like, I was like, Holy shit. I'm like, no shit. I'm like, okay. I thought I recognized that story. And they're like, yeah, yeah. I was like, isn't that fucking platoon? I was there for that. So it was kind of funny to see that, you know, like 10 plus years later, the new guys were telling stories about how fucking off the chain that this Foxtrot platoon at team five was back in the day. So it was yeah. pretty funny.
0: Team five definitely had its, uh, several platoons of troublemakers over the years. Uh, oh, yeah. I remember a, I remember a different one that had a bunch of guys in it that, you know, that also, you know, just, just total debauchery, just causing trouble, got in trouble all the time. I think they had to come home from deployment early. Uh, if you remember right. Um, but, uh, Yeah. Now, sniper, we, you ended your career at the advanced sniper school, and you, that's how you kind of ended up in Indiana, right? And Retiring there?
1: Yeah, sure did. It was actually kind of funny. I originally wanted to retire in Texas like you. Uh, you know, I got uh, one of my best friends down there in Texas and uh, kind of want to go down there, but the wife wanted to be a little bit closer to her parents. So basically, um, ended up a compromise, you know, I'm like, I, she wanted to go to, I'm like, there's no way we're going back to Illinois, which is where I was when I joined. I was yeah. like there's no way i'm going back to that state ever uh then you know there's wisconsin but i'm like nah so basically out of the midwest we kind of settled on indiana and then sure enough you know the sniper school was considered a hard billet you know what i mean so i was like and it fell in my lap and I was right in indiana so i was like yeah i'll take that Not so good. yeah it kind of fell right in alignment for me so i was able to start i actually moved here before i even retired while i was in the school i was looking for property and you've been out here um mm-hmm. i found my you know 85 acres with its own private lake on it and stuff like that and well right now as you can see i'm sitting here in a brand new house so that house that you saw before is getting tore down here in a week or so and i'm sitting in my brand new house on the property and so yeah basically no it all fell in my lap just perfectly
0: yeah no that's a great property and i know that the that, that that advanced sniper school had quite the reputation too at least when you know during my time it was definitely a premier uh school to go to and i know that it across the forces people talked about you know that schoolhouse and how good it was um especially for urban stuff and uh so you know you can't talk about snipers and and sneak and seal stuff without uh you know at least touching on chris kyle did he ever come through any of your stuff
1: yeah actually we put him through uh when i was actually at trade at so as you know trade at um, you go through the basic course, you know, the, the course out here, but then as you're deploying, they do refresh cycles and stuff like that. So I put him yeah. through some refresh stuff and, uh, I actually put him through some refresh stuff and I actually built him a clone, uh, of the Mark 13s back out there in Coronado. I had a little mill and lathe in my garage and work on stuff. And I actually ended up building him a Mark 13 clone, um, identical to the team guy. So that uh, yeah. I think, uh, I just say hey, I don't need to know anything about it but the way I understood it later I think that, uh I think he took that I took that he took that with him so he could you know I mean do some yeah, good work yeah. with it and hang yeah. on to it. So That
0: doesn't surprise me. I you know I no. was at I was at 3 with Chris when he was a new guy and then uh he was in my sister platoon. I mean get this man like him and a couple other guys I used to always just have to remind them when I, once I was in a leadership position like okay your first platoon is going to war your first platoon. Okay. And that, and this is when I was on whatever my third platoon (laughs) and I had to remind these kids, like, you know how fucking great you've got it. (laughs) Like your first deployment is, was either to Afghanistan or Iraq. If you're a seal team three, I mean, it was such a, a good deal. And, you know, and uh, I think they get they got spoiled by it, right? And then when as things started to slow down, then they're like, what the fuck? How come we're just sitting around? How come we're not getting to go out and shoot people anymore? <laughs> it's like, wait oh, a minute. Yeah. That's exactly how it is most of the time. You're lucky yep. if you're getting to pull the trigger.
1: Yeah, they just had good timing on a lot of that stuff.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then Chris, we stayed in touch. I remember uh, towards the end, even after he was out, he called me, and I was still in, and uh, he was like, isn't there like some kind of top secret just sniper cell that you can hook me up with? (laughs) I was like, (laughs) yeah, I think you would have to come in. I think you would have to come back in the Navy, buddy, if you want that. But, uh, yeah, he was was a diehard sniper all the way to the end. Good dude. Oh, Uh, yeah. Good corn-fed Texas kid. Um, All right, so uh, are you ready for your hypothetical scenario? We will be right back after the break. Yeah, Everybody let's like check it out. See if you survive this podcast after right. surviving war. You should be able to survive this podcast. All right. So uh, this one we tailored just for you, that, that you are a, uh, a weapons manufacturer. Um, after a brief road trip uh, out of state, you're headed home. You decide to stop at a small grocery store on the outskirts of a town and grab some snacks for the rest of your drive. You are unarmed. Hmm. Very mm. unlikely, but for this scenario, you are unarmed. All right, you park and head inside. You go to, you go to the aisle with... Uh, what is your favorite kind of snack when you're on the road?
1: Mmm, uh, probably beef jerky.
0: Okay, so you go to the aisle with the, with the beef jerky. And then uh, you're casually pursuing the selection of jerkies when you hear bang, bang, bang. Okay, gunshots go off, some people start screaming, chaos ensues, and now you're in the middle of an active shooter scenario. So, first question. Do you A, stay in the position that you're in and determine where the shots came from, or B, get down and try to zigzag your way to cover before assessing the threat and where it's coming from? These start out somewhat Uh. easy.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say. Well obviously I can't take cover if I don't know where the threat's coming from. So uh, obviously I would probably assess the situation, figure out where the shots are coming from first.
0: Yeah. Okay, yeah, but you're you're dropping, right? You're not just standing.
1: Oh, well, yeah, 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 yeah,
0: yeah. Okay. So yeah. Drop okay. but
1: generally I guess I guess what I'm thinking too is is where and, and you've seen it overseas where you start shooting at guys with suppressed weapons, they don't know where to jump on the wrong sides of the vehicles and stuff and you can start shooting them. So yeah. that's what I mean. So yeah, I'll basically drop, and make a smaller target then try to figure out which directions come from so can yeah there the you go right
0: i know yeah i know where you're coming from and i think it's important when most people don't know you know there's the there's the suppressed weapon where you you have no clue where the tick 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 tick, tick sound is coming from and then there is the unsuppressed big loud bang 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 indoors and gunshots fired indoors are a hundred times louder Especially if it's like some kind of carbine platform, and then uh, on top of that, it's omnidirectional. So, I mean, getting down and getting out of the line of fire, wherever it is, is the first thing. And then going, okay, now where the hell is that coming from? While you're also
1: looking for cover. Um, That's always a good idea. Absolutely. Um, And you know, one weird thing about the suppress weapons that you're talking about is uh, a lot of people think like the super suppress, like subsonic suppress is a good thing. But even though the weapon's making a small amount of noise, it's the only noise being made. Whereas when you hear a sonic crack from a gun that's suppressed, it actually is more confusing from where the shot's actually coming from. Because the sonic crack is localized to you, but it over—you know it's basically overbearing the actual sound of the weapon and mutes it. So
0: it's it oh, yeah. it
1: even more confusing.
0: Yeah, that's, that's just good science right there. Um, okay, so... You know, once again, freezing up is never a good thing, right? Um, but you get low, get to the ground, find cover, and then start assessing, like, where the hell is this guy? Where are these shots coming from? So you stay low and you get moving. Next, do you A, get behind a large rack of potato chips in order to hide from the shooter, or B, stay low and zigzag over to one of those freestanding meat coolers?
1: Oh, I definitely go for the meat cooler.
0: Yeah. Someone that provides
1: actual cover.
0: Yeah, exactly. That is one. Answer A is providing you concealment. Answer B is providing cover, meaning the difference is really is both of them hide you, but only one of them stops bullets. So you always want to look for the things out there that stop bullets, which is what we call cover. Uh, But if you don't have anything else and you can just get out of sight and it may not stop bullets. Well, that's called concealment. So that's, it's not a bad choice, but if you can get behind something that stops bullets, you should. Um, so yes, stressing the difference between cover and concealment, always choose cover. All right. So the gunshots continue. And so does the screaming, right? So shit's getting bad. Do you a peek out and try to determine where the shoot, where the shots are coming from, uh, or B, Sprint for an exit, which is on the other side of the store.
1: Mm, You definitely got to assess where the shooting's coming from before you make any moves. That's right.
0: A is correct. Peek out and determine where the shots are coming from. Uh, And, you know, ideally, you want to keep eyes on the shooter as much as possible. Um, I think people forget uh, that just because some dude has a gun... Uh, doesn't necessarily mean he has the advantage. There's a couple of things going on with an active shooter. He, uh, As soon as he pulls that trigger, he's deaf. okay, And then he also is blind because of adrenaline and the likelihood that this is his first time. Right, This is his first time to be pulling the trigger the way he is and shooting real people, not paper targets. You combined all that together, he's deaf and he's blind. There's only one instance where a guy actually put on hearing protection and IPro, <laughs> and then went into the and that was the El Paso shooting. He opened his trunk, he put on hear, hearing protection, IPro, uh, IPro, I, I believe, yeah, he, I think he put on IPro, and then he grabbed his rifle, and went into Walmart and started shooting people. So most of the time, these guys, as soon as they pull the trigger and the first round goes off. They their ears are ringing. So they can't hear, they can't see, and the point being is that if you keep your eyes on them, now you can take advantage of that. His sensory is... A bunch of his senses are fucked up. And so now you can move, you can dart around, and you can hopefully gain the advantage um, in some form or fashion. Okay. Um, So you are also... Okay, so you peek out. um, You still can't see the shooter, but... You can see what appears to be an injured store patron uh, near the exit of the front door of the store. Okay, this is about a hundred feet from you. Uh, the back of the store, where the employee-only section is, is about two hundred feet away from where you are. Okay, front doors are hundred, back door, employee-only, two hundred feet. Okay, and uh, so. You are also right next to the bakery area of the grocery store. So, do you a sprint towards the store exit or stay low and sneak into the bakery area and stock up on whatever improvised weapons that you may find?
1: Oh, I definitely go for the weapons.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> me too. Definitely.
0: I don't know. Bakery, though. Bakery. What's a good weapon we could find in the bakery? I wish it was the butcher. The butcher would be good. Yeah, um, okay. <clears throat> so, uh, with no eyes on the shooter, sprinting uh, towards the exit could be risky. And uh, with injured patrons at the front, uh, obviously the shooter is already taking out people who are fleeing. Okay. So, but you may find some useful weapons behind the baker's counter. So you sneak behind the baker's counter and you grab a rolling pin. Okay, now you are armed with a rolling pin and uh, and a cast iron skillet. Okay, these are your weapons, Monty. All right. (laughs) All right, so now that you've got some weapons, next, uh, do you A, make your way to the front exit, which is 100 feet away, or B, make your way to the rear, which is about 200 feet away? Uh, I mean, I keep guess in gets, mind what's going on at both ends right yeah
1: well so well then refresh me on that you say what's going on is there something going on well, closer to one
0: at, than the other yeah because up at the front you've got patrons who've been shot they're screaming there's all kinds of what you don't know what's going on up there but you definitely know people are getting shot at the front of the store and then near the rear it's uh, so far been crickets
1: Oh, okay. Well, if the rear is crickets and there's no active gunfire at the time that I can kind of assess which direction he's going, then I'd probably go away from the situation that I already know is there. So I, even though it's a little bit further, I might try to go the long yeah. way around it to avoid.
0: Yeah, correct. I think, you know, once again, that keeping it simple is if any time you can increase distance, you increase your own survivability. So I think it's a good idea. Um, and remember, you just saw all these people at the front. You know, you kind of don't want to I think there's this uh, the mammalian reflex where if you heard a people go running by it as mammals, we feel like, oh, I should run with them, which isn't always a good idea because they could be running towards danger. (laughs) So, you know, you kind of want to suppress some of the mammalian reflexes that you may feel at that moment in time and just kind of go, wait a minute. Do I want to be part of this big mass, this big bullet sponge that's running by? or maybe be a singleton or pair up with a couple other people and move in a smaller group, you know? So, uh, every, obviously every situation is different. Um, and it's up to you, uh, if you find yourself in that situation to figure it out. Um, okay. So even though it's uh, it's further from you, um, it, it definitely appears not to be as dangerous as the front of the store. So you stay low, you're trying to move from cover to cover. Uh, you head to the rear exit of the store. You pass through the rear employee-only area, okay? And at the other end of the employee-only area is an exit, which is about 30 feet, okay? So you got like those double doors, and then you've got 30 feet, and then you've got the actual exit. Um, Standing between you and the exit is a man with his back to you. He is facing the exit door. He has a rifle. Do you a slowly back out of the room because he hasn't noticed you, or B, go ahead and take that cast iron skillet and that uh, roller pin and put it to use.
1: Mm. How much distance is there between me and him?
0: (laughs) He's right in the middle of the room, so he's probably about 15 feet away.
1: Mm. I guess the safest thing is probably going to go ahead and back out of it, just because if he does hear you coming, you're kind of screwed. So I'd say probably the, the appropriate thing for survival rate is probably go ahead and try to back out of it. But once again, you're going to have to assess how many different avenues of, of egress there are out of there. You know what I mean? And what's the most likely. But uh, I well, guess. Which
0: which one would you do?
1: Oh, man, there'd be some serious temptation to go whack the guy. <laughs> you know what I okay. mean? Cause, yeah. Because if you can get up on him, whack the shit out of the guy. Yeah. And at least get your hands on his gun. Right. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and just with the basic knowledge of and, and, that you would have with the gun, it's like I could drop this dude's Mac. I can as soon as I can lay my hand on his gun, I can make his gun inoperable pretty quickly. You right. know what I mean? So yeah. um for, so let's see. Okay, so whatever's right for the scenario, what I'll <laughs> say is go ahead and whack the guy
0: <laughs> yeah. with the hand. Yeah, you're kinda of seeing how this goes. Um yeah. they, they, they're Definitely two right answers here. You're right. If you could, if, if, you, if it's really dependent on your own capability, right? For the listeners out there, if you're fully capable and you're ready to uh, engage and potentially take down an active shooter, uh, then by all means, if, if everything lines up and you can do it safely without hurting yourself or hurting others, And you can take advantage of a guy with his back turned to you then yeah i would say so why not Um, but on the same hand if you're not as capable maybe maybe you're with your family maybe you're you've you maybe you're a handicap you know you got or maybe you're injured you got the the old walking stick or something going on and you might want to use it but you know what's the likelihood of you being successful you really have to weigh it out Um, but for this scenario yes you throw the cast iron skillet as hard as you can, and it hits him right in the back of the head. And then you rush up behind him, and you start caving his head in with the rolling pin. Good job, Monty. Love that. Oh yeah. <laughs> so now you have a confirmed kill with your rolling pin. Well, I don't know. Maybe he's not dead. Sometimes these guys are zombies. We'll find out. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> not, all, not all listeners obviously can achieve this, but since you're a trained killer it's time for you to get aggressive, which you did. Uh, and in times like this, not knowing when and being ready to get aggressive, um, it, it can save lives. Um, so you knock this dude out with the skillet and you take his gun. Now you're back to team guy level. Okay. Um, do you a use the rear exit and leave the scene or B find something like zip ties or other improvised restraints, uh, in the employees area and zip tie this guy up, uh, before you do anything else.
1: Oh yeah. Secure the, secure the prisoner, zip tie him up. Secure the prisoner.
0: Yeah. Many items can be used as improvised restraints, right? We can use heck. I mean, I don't know if you've been watching all the, uh, the violence going on on our airlines across the world. Um, and if you notice, sometimes these people are restrained with like iPhone charging cables, <laughs> you know, oh, now yeah. they have restraint bags on these aircraft. I don't think people know that. But, yeah, I mean, if you if you decide you want to get belligerent, trust me, they've got um, law enforcement grade zip tie handcuffs uh, ready for you. So go ahead and act out on an airplane. You'll find yourself hogtied and in the back um, until the plane lands. So, yeah, there there's tons of stuff, right? I mean, heck, in a in a. Uh, in a back area like that, you're gonna have, you could have bungee cords, you could have any kind of cordage, rolls of cord. I mean, you name it. So uh, there is no wrong answer as long as you get them tied up correctly. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, okay, so now you're, in a, now you're in a good position to go help others. And, um, and coming from the outside of the store, rather than going back in, may give you an element of surprise. Right, so you go out that back door. Note, um you. Also, we don't always want to assume there was just the one bad guy. There could have been. There could be more. So um, you got to make sure that uh, you know you're uh, you're good to go. And you also have to remember now you have a gun, so you could be easily uh, confused um, as being a bad guy when in reality you're a good guy, uh, and so. You know, especially in these states where you have constitutional carry, uh, where everybody is carrying a gun. (laughs) And unfortunately, a bunch of those people are looking to be heroes. And uh, now you're roaming. You have to take a lot of thought as soon as you draw a gun or you grab the bad guy's rifle. You really got to make sure uh, you know what you're doing when you make some of these decisions to either go outside the building or start roaming through the building. Uh, you could be put in some uh, some other uh, happy hero's crosshairs, okay? Um, so anyway, back to the scenario. You exit the store and you make your way around to the front. When you get to the front, you see that you are now behind another bad guy who is aiming his rifle towards the entrance of the store. Okay, so now the whole scenario is starting to make sense to you, all right? Do you A, shoot him in the back of the head, Hmm, that sounds good. Or B, knock him out with a muzzle strike.
1: Oh, i definitely shoot him in the back of the head.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no hesitation there. <laughs> yeah, once again, this is one of those, hey, what's your capability? You know, since the guy is not shooting and he and does not realize uh, that you're there, uh a question remains is he a guy that's just like you right
1: yeah that's true he could be a good guy
0: he could have been a good guy could
1: have been been a good good guy guy. so yeah that could have been a bad call right there
0: so yeah i mean and what you went in a team guy mode right right dude's got a gun blow his head off fuck it why not (laughs) (laughs) Um, um but these i mean there's a lot to consider these days we're laughing about it we're having fun but man it is a it's a it's a you know it's a tactical decision making world out there as soon as something like this happens and uh in in the decisions that we would have made in theater are completely different than what you could make these days here in our own country right
1: yeah yeah that's true i guess a lot of that my, that was my my instinctual thing was just to shoot the guy but you're absolutely right that is much more of an overseas thing yeah. than uh over here because yeah you could end up in you know, jail for the rest of your life for doing something like that. But, oh uh, man, that would suck. Yeah, yeah. Um but, okay. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. He wasn't shooting. He's just standing there. And, uh, but it makes sense for the scenario because all the carnage was at the front door. All the screaming was at the front door. Now you come around the building, you see a guy with a gun standing at the front door. So, I mean, in court, would you probably be all right? Yeah. Heat of the moment. Um, you know, you got a great attorney. You'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. So, uh, last question: Do you a enter the store and clear it aisle by aisle, or b zip tie the bad guy? That's at or zip tie the guy up at the front, okay? Because you decided to muzzle strike him. You didn't. You didn't blow his head off. Okay. Um, call the police. Give them the intel and everything that you know, and let them handle it from here on out.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. At that point, you got to gotta go ahead and uh, call the police and let them handle it from that point out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, you've taken out two guys, um, you've zip tied them up, um, you know, and I guess probably unless you're hearing more active shooting going on indoors, really, that, you know, then that becomes a, a personal decision, right? You're going to go in and continue uh, saving the day, or do you step back and wait for law enforcement to come do it their way, right? So, um either way you survived this podcast congratulations monty those were awesome points you made obviously based on great experiences overseas uh doing dirty deeds for dirt cheap and uh, i appreciate you coming on so before we leave uh where can people find out more about you and centurion arms
1: really just uh, our website www.com Centurionarms.com that basically have our whole product line there. There's uh, we also have a Facebook group, the Centurion Arms Forum. Uh, So a lot of people join in there and and get product information and leads on new stuff that we're doing. But uh, yeah, between the website and signing up for the email list through the website, getting on that for any new product, new stuff that we're developing and the, and the forum and follow us on Instagram. And those are really our main, our main areas.
0: All right. Well, Hey man, We'll make sure to uh, we'll make sure to push you. Uh, I can speak from personal experience. Monty and his company build an incredible product. Uh, I've got a couple of his rifles. I have been getting rifles from him uh, for years now. Uh, God, I don't even know how many over the years spread out that uh, that I've bought from you, man. It's always an awesome product, and uh, and and, in, uh, and just like anybody, man, I appreciate your service and. Uh, and everything you've done um so thank you for coming on board and like i always say keep it simple because crisis will complicate the rest and until next time be safe out there can you survive this podcast is a production of calvary audio and iheart media recorded live from a secure location here in dallas texas produced by brandon morgan jeff apple and clint emerson executive produced by keegan rosenberger and dana brunetti for calvary audio i'm clint emerson